If you've got uh, your copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to turn to Mark chapter 9. If not, you can, of course, follow on the screens or uh, in your bulletin. Uh, for the next uh, few weeks, at least four or five weeks, what I'd like to do uh, is just return to the Gospels uh, to get a really clear look at uh, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, if you've been with us over the summer, you'll know that, that we've looked at Christ through the kind of hints and the shadows that are all through the covenants in the Old Testament. But of course, when you come to the New Testament, uh, it all opens up and we get to see our Savior. We get to see Jesus, God in the flesh, in all of his full glory. And what the scriptures answer for us are some really interesting questions. If God is going to live on earth, if he's going to invest his time on earth, what is he going to do when he's here? What is he going to do with his time? Who will he spend his time with? Who will he interact with. And so what I'd like to do just for the next couple weeks, four or five weeks, I think is what it is, is to look at how Jesus interacted with people. And that really is the bulk of what Jesus did when he was here. He was in relationship with other people. He formed relationships, mostly with his 12 disciples, but with thousands of people he formed relationships with. Uh, with all sorts of different people from all sorts of sectors of society. And I think it's a great reminder to us. We live in obviously a very technological age um, where we have computer screens and phones and it's easy to get lost in the isolation of computer screens and phones and never really interact with other people. But when you look to Jesus, you're reminded that the business of life really is relationships. And so what we're going to do this fall is we're going to look at Jesus's relationship in specific with two kind of sectors of his own society. We're going to take a look at how Jesus related to the religious people in his world, those that his society had deemed to be admirable and worthy of respect. But on the other end, we're going to look at how Jesus related to the rejected of his society how he related to the people that society had in many ways scoffed at and had cast out. And so our passage this morning is Mark chapter 9, and I'm going to be reading uh, from verses 14 uh, to 29. Hear God's word. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able and he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And, when they, brought the boy, and they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. 
And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he'd entered the house, His disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord God, help us to know your ways, as Psalm 25 reminds us. Teach us your paths. Lead us in your truth and teach us, for you are the God of of our salvation. For we wait for you all day long, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our passage this morning deals with uh, what it calls an unclean spirit, and it's about an unclean spirit that we learned had uh, inhabited a young boy for many years. Now, I don't know about you, but a lot of modern people have a hard time with these sorts of passages when they come to the Gospels, Uh, whether it's an unclean spirit or whether it's other passages where it appears in which Jesus very clearly uh, freed someone Uh, from a demon possession or a spirit that had troubled them uh, for many years. And some, as they approach these passages, want to take them at face value. They essentially say, if it says demon possession, if it says an unclean spirit, then it must be exactly what it says, that demons can or have the capacity to inhabit people at times, uh, to control them, and that leads to all sorts of Uh, infirmities or ailments for that particular person. And so that's one way of thinking about it. Others look at this and uh, simply say that this is a young boy with some sort of medical problem. In fact, some have looked at this and said, well, that sounds like epilepsy. That uh, science in many ways has uh, negated the idea of demon possession. So there there has to be some sort of medical uh, explanation for this that they didn't have then, that we have now. And of course, epilepsy or something like this seems like a good fit as to what's going on here. Uh, Still others, uh, as one commentator puts it, still others take a a a reverent agnosticism view about passages like this. We don't exactly know what's going on, and so we don't know exactly where to fall on it. Well, either way, I think whenever we come to passages like this, I think there are two dangers. And I think C.S. Lewis, I think it was in Screwtape Letters, uh, really articulated the two dangers whenever we approach things like demon possession or spiritual warfare and all those things. There's two real dangers that we have to be careful of. One thing we all have to understand, I think this is what the scriptures are very clear about, is this, that there is a spiritual realm that is out there. And that that spiritual realm is, is, is very different than our own realm in which we can kind of reach out and physically touch things, right? Those things feel very real to us, but there is also a spiritual realm that is just as real as the physical world in which we live in. 
So that's one thing that the scriptures are very clear about. But as we think about that spiritual realm, I think there's, there's two extremes, and this is what Lewis articulates. He says, one danger is that we can become so consumed with thinking about that spiritual realm that in some ways we can become obsessed by it, right? And uh, I've run into folks that have fallen into this uh, sort of thinking where it feels like a devil or a demon is behind every corner or under every rock. Uh, Every uh, decision in life boils down to the, the devil that's on one shoulder giving you advice and the angel that's on the other shoulder uh, giving advice as well. And so when this overconsumption happens, sometimes it can cause uh, people to be paralyzed in the midst of this spiritual reality. And so I think that's one extreme we have to be careful of, but I think the other extreme is to just ignore it entirely to live as if there is no spiritual realm at all. I think the the middle ground, or I think the appropriate scriptural ground, is to recognize that there is a spiritual realm and that there is a tension in that heavenly realm. The scriptures tell us that the victory has been secured in the person of Jesus Christ. So the, the end of the story has been written. In many ways, the battle has been won, but the battle still rages in a way that we don't always understand or perceive. And you and I are a part of that spiritual tension, that spiritual battle that exists all around us. And so we think about that when we come to passages like this. But actually, I would say that I don't think at the end of the day this passage is really talking about demon possession or, or that it even wants us to focus on that aspect of the story. I think what this story really drives us to think about is that this is a young son and the faith journey of a father. I think this passage is really about faith and the journey of faith that in many ways we all are on. As the story opens, we learn that there's some characters here. Uh, There's a father and there is a son. And we learn that the son has had an extremely difficult life. And so the father hears that, that Jesus and his disciples are in town. And so the father has heard the rumors. He's heard the stories. And so maybe I can take my son to meet Jesus or even Jesus' disciples. And so at the beginning of the narrative, the father brings the son to Jesus' disciples. Uh, people were doing this sort of thing all the time. But the disciples, at least in this instance, can't do anything for the boy. They, they can't heal this boy. And so the religious, the the religious people of Jesus' day that were a part of the crowd see the disciples' inability to heal this young boy, and they seize upon it. And so what you learn at the very beginning is there's, it it brings about this argument between the religious of Jesus' day and Jesus' disciples. And I can't help but think about this poor father who comes to Jesus' disciples for help, and all that winds up coming from it is some sort of religious argumentation. And so here's this father, and yet everyone else, the compassion has gone out the window for everyone else. They're just arguing about spiritual and religious things when all that father wanted in desperation is for his young son to be healed by Jesus. Uh, one of my, I've talked about this before, one of my favorite podcasts uh, is about history, and uh, uh, there's one of the podcasters is a man named Bob Crawford, 
And uh, uh, I think Bob's great because of his podcast, but a lot of people know him as uh, the bass player in a very popular band called the Avid Brothers. Uh, maybe you've heard the Avid Brothers. I know there are some fans that are here. Uh, but if you know Bob's uh, story at all, you'll know that uh, a couple years ago, uh, he up and, and virtually quit the band for a year. Uh, he left them uh, while they were touring at the very height of their popularity. And the reason he left the band was because one night uh, he and his wife Melanie were sleeping and one night they were startled. They walked into their two-year-old daughter's uh, bedroom and saw that she was having a seizure. Of course, they go to the doctors to try to determine what's happened and they discover that their young two-year-old daughter uh, has a very aggressive form of cancer. And you can imagine their desperation. They immediately go from one doctor to the next. Every one of those doctors tells them there's nothing they can do. She's too young. The, the cancer is just too aggressive. So they go to the next doctor and the next doctor and the next doctor, all of them saying virtually the same thing. There's nothing that can be done. And so finally, in a last-ditch effort, they go to St. Jude Hospital. And for the first time, a doctor says to them, there is hope for your daughter. And the beautiful story is now Hallie is, is healed. She doesn't have cancer anymore. She has some of the consequences of it. But uh, in the midst of it, her father, Bob, discovered a vibrant faith in Jesus Christ because he was in the chapel at St. Jude Hospital praying to God for a miracle for his young daughter who seemed to be in a hopeless situation. And I can't help but think of that when I think about this story because I'm considered, I, I'm convinced that there can be nothing harder for a parent than seeing their child suffer. And that's exactly what is going on in the heart of this father as he brings his son to Jesus. Think about what, he, what the passage says about the son, that his condition had made him mute and deaf, that, that seizures had caused him to to, to grind his teeth and to foam at the mouth. And the passage even tells us that he even has one of these fits at the feet of Jesus, right in front of Jesus, for the whole crowd to, this, to see. And so the father starts to unfold this story to Jesus, telling Jesus that, that the boy has suffered like this since he was a child, that at times he's been set on fire, that, that at times he's been close to drowning, and so you have to think about the physical scars that this young child must have borne just because of his history with this spirit or this ailment. But that isn't even the end of, the, of this man's suffering because, of course, he suffered that his son was, was in such a terrible condition, but he would have suffered culturally as well because in Jesus' day, people were very quick to connect uh, sufferings and infirmities directly with sin. And this is called retributive theology in some ways. And so what that means is that someone must have sinned, most likely the father, and that's the reason that this boy was the way that he was. And so did, not only did this father uh, suffer because of the condition of his son, but he would have suffered culturally under this very oppressive label of sinner, that he was in many ways to blame for his son's own condition. And because of that, he would have, be, he would have been, been considered an outcast uh, or a rejected person in Jesus's society. 
And so, of course, this man comes to Jesus. He's exhausted every avenue and every road. And when he sees Jesus, he's at the end of his rope. He is in a state of utter desperation. And even as he interacts with Jesus, you can hear the helplessness and the hopelessness even in his own voice. He says to Jesus, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And so what Jesus says to him is remarkable. Jesus tells him that all that is required is faith. All that is required for this boy to be healed is faith. And that tells us that really faith is the main issue of this story. So as the man hears Jesus say that it's just a matter of faith, it says this in verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out, He cried out and he said, I believe, help my unbelief. See, I think there's two things that we see in the Father's response that speak to us about the nature of faith. It shows us that faith involves a certain measure of conviction, but also faith involves a certain measure of courage. And so the first thing we see in the Father is that conviction. He declares to Jesus his belief. He says to Jesus, I believe. And of course, at the end of the story, we know the son is healed from his infirmity through faith in the power of Jesus Christ. Verse 27, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he rose. Now, friends, the the physical suffering and infirmity of this boy was pretty bad. It was pretty severe as to what we can tell from the story. The, The emotional suffering that the father was going through is unimaginable, something that is hard to even put our shoes in. But what the scriptures say is this, is that the scriptures speak that there is an even worse condition for humanity than what this father is suffering. Because the scriptures tell us that all of us have a sickness as well. That all of us are sick with the pollution of sin. It tells us that our hearts have rebelled against God. That each and every one of us are born bent towards that rebellion. We are born broken because of our sin. And the scriptures tell us that we are not just spiritually sick, but that we are actually spiritually dead in our sins. We are like a spiritual corpse. And the other thing the scriptures reinforce is that that, that this is far worse than any other physical problem or ailment that we can experience. And so take for a moment all the problems that you're dealing with right now. And we're all dealing with problems, aren't we? We all have issues in our life, things that are stressors and difficulties, problems that weigh on us. Well, what the scriptures tell us is as bad as our life could be with full of all sorts of problems, our greatest problem, every person's greatest problem is that they are spiritually dead before a holy God. But what the gospels tell us is clear. With Jesus, there is healing. In Jesus, we can experience a spiritual resurrection, that Jesus brings hope to our hopeless state, that you and I can be healed and restored from our greatest infirmity. We can be fixed within our greatest problem. But our healing doesn't come through effort, doesn't come through hard work. 
It comes through faith in Jesus Christ and faith in him alone. We are called, each one of us, to believe in Jesus, to to place our faith in him and his finished work on our behalf. And when we do, we can be healed just as powerfully as this young boy was healed by Jesus. That's why Romans 10 very simply says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. And so just as this boy was healed from his infirmity by the instrument of faith, faith in Jesus is the source of our spiritual healing as well. And so that's the conviction we see in this passage, the conviction in declaring what we believe. But as I said before, we don't just see conviction here, we also see courage. We see courage in this father, we see conviction to declare his belief, but we also see courage to admit what? His unbelief. He says, I believe, help my unbelief. You see, what the father recognized is that while he had a thread of faith to him, he also had a lot of doubts. He recognized that his faith was imperfect and he wasn't afraid to admit it before Jesus. He wasn't afraid to admit that his faith was weak and imperfect. And yet, despite that admission, Despite the weakness of faith, despite the wrestling of doubts that we see expressed in this father, what does Jesus do? Jesus still heals the boy. He didn't just partially heal him because this man's faith was only partially strong. Instead, in the midst of all the doubts and the wrestling and the struggle, Jesus still in his grace heals this young boy of his infirmity. I think there's a couple things that we need to be thoughtful of when we think about this. One of the things we have to come to terms with, we have to realize, is that we must not think that Jesus requires perfect faith from us. We must not think that. Because what the Gospels present is a Jesus who welcomes us in the midst of our doubts and our struggles. He knows that some days we we, we feel like we have faith that can move mountains. But he also knows that other days we, have, we don't have enough faith to feel like we can even get out of bed and live through that day. But the good news of the gospel is this, that the strength of our faith isn't rooted in us. It's not rooted in us and our ability to conjure up faith or our ability to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Instead, what the gospels tell us is that the strength of our faith is rooted in the object that we place our faith in. The strength of our faith is rooted in Jesus. So one of the things that this passage warns us of is this, that we can't fall into the trap of thinking that Jesus somehow requires absolute perfect faith from us. But I think it also points to something else. I think it also warns us that we also must not fall into the trap of thinking that we need to display perfection to others. I think that's clear here. And this is why I appreciate the man's courage from this passage, because I think his desperation had clarified a lot of things for him. Desperation does that for us. It clarifies life for us. 
And for him at this point, it didn't matter how religious he looked to everyone. That didn't matter to him. It didn't matter if his religious reputation took a hit by admitting his doubts and his struggles. None of that mattered to this man. And so he had the courage in front of all these people and in front of Jesus himself to admit his own imperfection and his doubts. One of the commentators said this, the father tethers what little faith he has to Christ and asks for help just as he is. Friends, I think sometimes people have a hard time relating to Christians. They look at Christians and they they have a hard time relating. They kind of scratch their heads a little bit. And they sometimes walk away thinking, well, I could never be as good or as righteous as that Christian who I've interacted with. And let's face it, part of that is our fault. Part of it is our fault because we are often so afraid to admit our weaknesses and our frailties before others. And so what do we do? We hide behind things and we pretend. We hide behind platitudes or we pretend that we're better than we really are, but really none of those things at the end of the day matter. All that really matters is Jesus because we are desperate and weak and alone apart from him. And that's why I think Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul, this giant of the spiritual faith, this man who we're supposed to look up to as a hero in the faith, he says this. He says, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and message were not plausible with words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the power of the Spirit, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God." This is why Paul talks about boasting in our weakness, because he knew that if we boast in our weakness, what that does is it puts the power of Jesus Christ on display. When we're afraid to admit our weakness, when we're afraid to admit our frailties, when we hide and we pretend, then Jesus's power becomes obscured. And so Paul says, boast in your weakness. Have the courage to admit your imperfection because when you do, the power of God is on display. Friends, being a Christian isn't about puffing out our chest or fine-tuning our religious resume. It's about being open about our weaknesses, about our frailties, our doubts, and yes, even our sin so that the power of Jesus Christ can be on display for a world that is watching. And so live with the open conviction that faith in Jesus Christ is the only way to be healed from spiritual sickness. But also live with the courage to be open about your mess so that the power of Christ might be on display for the world to see. Let's pray.